Since 1998, keyboardist and vocalist Gabe Dixon has been busy fronting the Gabe Dixon Band. Now his focus has shifted to concentrate on his solo career and the release of his new album project, One Spark. My favorite song is the one I write for you. It's the one I haven't finished yet. I hope I never do. My favorite words are the ones you say to me. Gentle as a summer breeze, certain as the sea. And I haven't found the perfect way to show you how I feel. But I'll try and try again until I do. My favorite, my favorite, you. Just ahead I can hardly wait to lie Beside you in our bed My favorite life Is the one that we have made Together now we're intertwined With every passing day Inside Music Cast welcomes Gabe Dixon. Hey, Gabe, thanks for joining us today. 
Uh, it's good to be here. You're welcome. You know, having, having first learned about your music, which which I first learned about your music back in 2008, you know, I, I've personally become a big fan and I've been really looking forward to this interview for quite some time and you know we're going to we're going to s- focus on your new solo project called One Spark but I want to begin by going back and filling in our listeners with a little mm-hmm. bit about you know your background and, uh, particularly so in fact let's go way back and I want to give I want you to give us an idea as to when you first discovered your love uh, and your talent for music I mean when was that were you were just a 2 year old or were you you know was it later in life um it was pretty early. I guess there were a few different instances that had a big impact on me. I guess, uh, you know, I first start, I remember one of the first songs I ever remember liking. I was probably five or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, was a Christmas song, "Little Oh Little Town of Bethlehem." I just remember thinking the uh, the harmony was just I, the harmony and the melody was so really struck me as wow. I really liked that song, and I tried mm-hmm. to learn it, and uh, actually ended up. Uh, um, I had the music, and I had my mom write the names of the notes over the uh, over the, the you know the written notes. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to math how to match them up, so I took a green marker uh, just to make it easy on me, and I wrote on every single piano key <laughs> <laughs> the name of the note so I could match them up, and um, and that just kind of made it easier for me to play the song. My mom wasn't too happy about it. No, but, I don't uh, think so. <laughs> at that point, I think she decided I should kind of uh, maybe get, go into piano lessons or something. But, yeah. but uh, you know, another instance I remember from way back was uh, just uh, my, again, you know, music was really popular in our household. I mean, my parents listened to a lot of records and mm-hmm. everything from blues to rock to classical and and uh, and. and in particular, my mom liked uh, Luciano Pavarotti, you know, uh-huh. and she would listen to him really loud. And and I remember one day, um, she was she was crying, you know, and I I didn't understand what that was about, you know. I said, "What's the matter, you know, mom? You know what what happened?" And she said, "Oh, it's just so the music's just so beautiful, mm-hmm. you know." And so uh, I'll always remember that moment um, being. I don't know. I could just can never forget that it was something just sparked in me right. when I uh, when I heard that from her, and it made me realize, I guess, how powerful music can be. You know? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, it probably wasn't like me. You know, when I sing at the house, my girls start crying from <laughs> fear. <laughs> I think it's a different thing you're talking about. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's cool though. Well, well very cool. Uh, you know, I, did you begin? I mean, obviously, you said you know you you wrote green marker notes on the on the keys of the piano. So I'm assuming piano was your first instrument, right? Yeah. Did, have sure. you, did you play anything else? Study anything else? You know, from fifth grade to ninth grade, I played trumpet and. Uh, my I, pretty much anything that was around, I, I started to kind of tinker on. My uh, my brother played guitar, so I'd pick up his guitar every once in a while and yeah. his drum set, you know. And and uh, my main instrument was piano. And I was about eleven or twelve. I started getting into singing just because I, I wanted to play, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis and Elton John, <laughs> yeah. Beatles songs and that kind of thing. And so I just kind of I just started doing that. I learned, you know, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and Hey Jude and Great Balls of Fire, and I just kind of learned how to play those and sing them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of that's sort of when I uh, really started to get deeper personally into music. You know, before that, I had an interest and I was taking piano lessons, you know. But once it's, I started really feeling 
once I started learning the stuff that you play and sing together and more rock stuff, that's when uh, when I started to get really excited about it. You know? Yeah, definitely. Do you ever remember the first song that you wrote? Uh, how old were you? The first song I wrote yeah. um, was, uh, I guess I was 15. It was a song called Nashville Bound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wrote with my mom, actually. Wow. <laughs> she was an early collaborator. <laughs> and, uh, that's very cool, though. I think I probably wrote like maybe four songs uh, before I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and after that it kind of picked up. Right. I mean, you find yourself at University of Miami. You're University of Miami guy, and uh, and that's where you basically, uh, you know, jumped in and and formed your first band. Right. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, well, it wasn't really until my junior year. Uh, I wasn't even completely sure that I that that was even realistic to have a career as a singer-songwriter. Um, mm-hmm. So up until then, I I, di- I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I knew I wanted to play music. Were you studying music? I was studying music. I was okay. studying classical piano okay. you know, at the school, you know. And, and, and I had been, you know, I'd had experiences as a teenager. You know, when I was about 12, I got into a band, a teen country boy band uh, called Six Shooter. Right. That was like uh, my first experience in the music business, you know. And it was I played the piano and and sang in that group, and it was a really really great exposure to kind of what it's like to sing in a studio and what it's like to, um, you know, I that had a profound impact on me actually because what we did is they didn't we didn't play on the records um, because they wanted like that Nashville sound, mm-hmm. but. Instead, I got to sit there and watch all these great Nashville studio session players play, um, and I would steal the charts off the off the piano when they're done and that kind of thing, <laughs> yeah. and kind of learn, cop what they were doing and and learn. That's how I learned the Nashville number system. You know? Yeah, right. I was going to ask you that. Uh, but then I'd go in and sing, uh, you know, sing lead on the songs, and uh, at that point in time, this was like the '90s. And I was when I was a teenager, and so they didn't have uh, really Pro Tools, and they weren't big into like tuning and stuff. So right. I had to I had to sing it, you know, until it was right, you know, and with the emotion and the pitch and everything like that. And so I think that was probably had was the best training for me as a singer, you know, that I uh, that I've ever had, you know. Yeah. And then after being in a few bands in high school, like blues bands and and rock. Uh, rock funk bands and stuff. I went off to the University of Miami and eventually like junior year I I had amassed a few songs and so I was home for the summer in Nashville and I got I had a job at Sir Speedy as a truck delivery guy. Okay. <laughs> and uh I I delivered paper uh-huh. and and I did that for a month and a half or so and I just just got fed up with it. Um it was a fine job, but it, well, I just felt like I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. Sure. You know? And so I kind of had to just say, all right, uh, got to figure something out. So I ended up somehow getting a job playing for tips in the back of Tootsie's Orchid Lounge in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh-huh. <laughs> from every Monday through Thursday from 1 to f- one to 5. And so that's kind of the moment where I really started to hone my own thing. I was playing a lot of covers, but I kept putting in inst- you know, my own songs and the following year when I went back to school is when I uh, I started my band. Yeah. And that was around 2000, uh, 
What, what, what? No, I'm sorry. That was around 1998, right? Yeah. Okay. That was November of 98. Well, I was thinking about University of Miami, and, and there's you know a couple people that come to mind that I, I know that graduated from there, and their music school was Bruce Hornsby and Pat Matheny, and uh, you know not to mention a, a lot of others. And that's such an incredible music school. And um, I just wondered what was the attraction to that particular school. I mean, there you know you've got Belmont there that you know you could have studied. Yeah, but why, why did you uh, why did you take uh, your education down to the University of Miami? Um, well, it was kind of a recommendation of a of a, a respected friend named Paul Zahn, who taught composition at the University of Illinois, uh-huh. and he was a kind of a mentor of mine. And there was a teacher down at University of Miami whose name is J. B. Floyd, and he's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Paul just really thought I should go and play for him because he, he, JB is, he's a classical teacher, but he's very, you know, open-minded and understands kind of the connectedness of, of all of it. And bottom line, is just a great piano player and teacher and mentor. So Paul, uh, you know, so I, I, on his recommendation, I, uh, I, you know, I went down and I played for him and they, they really liked me. Hmm. And so uh, they gave me... They gave me more money than Bel- than uh, than Berkeley. So. Yeah, that's that's always so, a, con- a consideration. It's all about the money. Here. It's all about the money. <laughs> and not to mention the fact that I mean the campus is just just gorgeous. Well, right. you know. and you're in Miami. You've got weather there too, so that's an attraction. <laughs> yeah, you can't beat that. Yeah, and, and it's and a, it's an incredible school. I mean, it's a great music school. It is, and I mean, it's probably like maybe just five, four or five hundred students in this music school. And sure. So, and everybody's really, really good. And even though, you know, I, I wasn't in the jazz program, they're really known for their jazz program, mm-hmm. but, right. but we all hung out, you know, and we all just ch- challenged each other. And I think I really grew as a as a musician, mostly, mm-hmm. there. And um, had, had, enough, had enough sort of uh, personal life romantic turmoil to write a few a few songs <laughs> and uh before i knew it i i was playing in a band that was doing doing well down yeah there. i tell you we spoke to stephen bishop one time several a few years back and he said you know tragedy is the most amazing inspiration for a songwriter you know <laughs> yeah. especially a broken heart right <laughs> well it's a lot easier to write about tragedy and sadness than than it is to write about happy things yeah, that's right that exactly was, that's been my challenge lately i i finally wrote a truly happy song <laughs> yeah. on the new album uh, called My Favorite. That's right. So, uh, anyway. <laughs> well, you know, I, I just want to keep with the Gabe Dixon band for a second here. You guys, like you said, you formed back in Miami in 1998, and you released your first album as an independent, uh, on an independent label called uh, More Than It Would Seem. And... Um, it, that album, you know, I, I don't think I've ever heard. I don't think I've ever gotten my ears on it because it was kind of. I don't. I don't think I've been able to find it. But um, did some of the songs from that album end up on your uh, the, your second release called "On a Rolling Ball"? Some of quite a few of the songs did, uh, and even uh, one of the two of the actual recordings. But we took the tracks from that, and uh-huh. they ended up on the on on a rolling ball as well. The the one we did the the first independent album that we did called More Than It Would Seem uh-huh. we we did with Eddie Kramer who who heard who we entered a contest to be his sort of music engineering guinea pigs I guess at the school okay um, 
you know, where he could kind of show the music engineering students how to, you know, his miking techniques and this and that, how to record a band. But uh, we, didn't, we didn't have a guitar player, so we got second place because he, he really needed a band that had a guitar player, so he okay. could demonstrate all of that. Mm-hmm. But he really liked the band and decided to come down uh, to Miami and record us. He flew down on his own dime and, and just really took, took some time with us, and we didn't have a whole lot of time in the studio, but uh, we did the whole record from start to finish, from, from tracking to mixing in five days. Wow. All to, all to <laughs> tape, you know. Yeah. And, and that was, it was a really, really exciting experience for all of us, and it was fun to hear Eddie tell Jimi Hendrix stories. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and all that. That would have been an ex- experience just in itself to work with him. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, on on a rolling ball, you know, was your first major release on on reprise, and it came soon after the the band had moved to New York. So, tell us a little bit about the experience of signing with a major label, and you know how how did that change your you guys as a band? You know, catapulting you guys forward. Well, it didn't really change us all that much. I, I remember when it, it was kind of one of these uh, you know amazing stories where. David Kahn, who was the head of A&R at Warner Brothers Records, um, went to see us at a club called Acme Underground in New York. And that's the night I met him. The following day, we had a meeting with him, and he said, hey, do you want to be on Warner Brothers Records? And and, uh, when when we had that meeting, he said, so how do you want to do this? Do Do you want to do the sort of top 40 thing where I have a pretty heavy hand in the production and the tracks, and you know we 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 make this a a singles oriented kind of record, or do you want to base it on live touring and really just be the band that you are mm-hmm. and uh and kind of have it be a slow growth kind of thing and of course, we were fresh out of music school, so we thought, oh of course, you know we've got to be our be ourselves be our band and and do it like that and so it was really a kind of a remarkable thing because we got to make the pretty much the exact record that we wanted to make and it, it was really sort of a moment in time captured for us and who we were and what we sounded like live but it was in the studio you know there were a few tricks we we uh we used you know just effects and that kind of a thing but right um i think the 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 best thing it did for us was it gave us some major label support you know mm-hmm. like it gave us uh the opportunity to quit our Temp jobs, you know, and go out on tour for a couple of years. Yeah, opening opening for um, all these great people that we love. You know, we opened for Nora Jones and played side stages at the you know at Dave Matthews Band and Allman yeah. Brothers Band and uh, uh, you know Aerosmith. You know, yeah, uh, and uh, and so got to see a lot. Got to see a lot of great music and got to get the music out there to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well, you just you just mentioned the Dave Matthews band, and and when I first heard "On a Rolling Ball," you know, it, to me it was a, it was an interesting mix of you know jazz, blues, rock, and even even a little funk thrown in there. But I always felt that that album's direction could have placed you sort of in that same league or category with the Dave Matthews band. It you know it had kind of a, a jam band quality to it, especially on songs like you know "Bird Dancer," "Expiration Date," and and "Sitting at the Station." Yeah, well, I ab- absolutely. I think some of that is just about. Uh, the fact that we were all musicians, you know, for, first and foremost, you right. know, and, and, and 
and the music was very, uh, you know, improvisatory back then. I mean, we yeah. it, it was very important to us to leave enough space in the show to kind of let something happen musically. Yeah, that um, was spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, and with having the sax in the band, that that just that helped that all all the more. You know, just really right. If it didn't, if it, if if there, if it was just like a cookie cutter show every time, and it didn't go somewhere, you know, and wasn't special in that night, then it was, you know, wasn't really worth doing to us, you know. Right. Yeah, and it surprised me a second ago when you said, you know, we're talking about the University of Miami, and you said you really didn't, you didn't really study jazz, you know, and you weren't part of that group or whatever. But you know, because that album certainly had, you know some severe jazz elements to it at times, especially in the impro- improvisation area. Well, I was listening to a lot of jazz, and I, I, I did study, mm-hmm. uh, I'd studied jazz piano, and I, I, on my own, I just transcribed a lot of jazz. But mm-hmm. Okay. I wasn't just, I just wasn't in the program. But, but the other three guys in the band were, um, like, they were all in the jazz school, and so we were definitely in that headspace uh, yeah. when we were making records. Yeah. Yeah. In 2005, you released uh, Live at the World Cafe, and that was an EP that contained uh, six tracks. And uh, it, it sort of contained a live preview of a song, of, of a few songs that eventually were released on the, you know, your 2008 self-titled album. I was just wondering, you know, and on this EP, that it might have sounded as if you were at the stage where you were honing your own style and you were developing a little bit more. Tell me about uh, this this uh, this release in 2005. Well, I think the main thing that happened for me uh, between the first album and the 2005 release mm-hmm. is that I, I, I started to focus more on songwriting um, and, and less on just, you know, you know, improvising and playing. Yeah, right, right. And so, you know, what you have with that is just kind of a collection of uh, a few songs that I had just written pr- just before doing that EP. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the cover of Hey Joe, uh, and just right. we literally went in and had a couple, like one or two rehearsals. The band didn't even know the songs. We weren't even living in the same city at the time. Wow! But we hadn't done anything in a while, and we really wanted to. And so, uh, you know, we were able to somehow partner with that venue, World Cafe in Philly. Yeah, and. Uh, we didn't even necessarily know it was going to become a live album. Yeah. Um, but we we did it, and they happened to be they multi-tracked it. So, um, lo and behold, you know, it, it became live at World Cafe. And I I, I think uh, you'll hear in the songs some of the stuff that was going on in my life. You know, I I decided to move from New York back to my hometown of Nashville, and so mm-hmm. that song Five More Hours is kind of reflective of that experience and, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and uh, just kind of what was going on in my life then. And I, I think one thing that was cool about that album is it, it was the first time we'd ever done any recordings as a trio, me and John Owen Winston. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, we were starting to listen a lot to bands like The Police and, mm-hmm. I guess, Cream and, and, and some, some like Jimi Hendrix experience. And so it kind of was fitting for us at the time. You know, I was just kind of thinking about, um, you know, where you grew up, being in Nashville, uh, being surrounded by the music scene there, you know, from a from a kid all the way up until when you moved to Miami. And, of course, Miami has its own unique sort of scene when it comes to music. And then, and then you traveled up to New York, which definitely has its own, you know, particular scene. And I just wondered, 
you know, uh, just New York in general, thinking about, you know, hopping from Nashville to Miami to New York and, and spending a lot of time there, what, uh, what, did, what did New York give you or what did it bring you as far as, uh, uh, you know, your musical development? What did New York bring my musical development? Um, I mean, did it did you, did you take anything away from the experiences there and the people you met and the you know the the types of, of music you were creating? I mean, that just being in that environment, it was a different vibe. Yeah, I would say so. I did I did see some music, uh, some live music there. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have seen you know like Wayne Krantz. Oh yeah, uh, in, in New York, I saw him play uh, at least once. I saw Brad Meldow at the Village Vanguard, mm-hmm. uh, which was pretty. Just mind blowing uh, for me, uh, and uh, I think just I don't know living there. Uh, there's such an energy about that city um, that uh, to be. I think just kind of honing your craft there is is, is good. It kind of hardened me a little bit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it wasn't so much just New York, but the, just the fact that I started playing out so much in that time, um, both in New York and just around, all around the country. Uh, I got a lot of practice playing in front of crowds, sometimes unfriendly crowds, you know, or crowds that just did not care who you were. Mm-hmm. They're, they're there to see the opening, you know, the headlining band. <laughs> right, right. You know, um, yeah, I, I, I think for me it was the first time I'd really lived in a, what I would consider uh, a a big international city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. So that just, I don't know, it's hard to say exactly how it, yeah. how it uh, affected me. Well, in 2008, you know, you released the self-titled album that I happened to discover on iTunes. I, I, I didn't know about it, but I just happened to see, uh, uh, you know, a, a display of your album pop up, and I said, hmm, "Let me take a listen to that." And and man, what a, what a discovery! I mean, this album was without a doubt my favorite album of 2008, and quite literally one of my all-time favorite albums in general. So, it, you know, it's it's so rare, you know, to find an album anymore that to me was just so complete from start to finish. Well, thanks. That one had a nice, we had a nice vision for it. I mean, we really wanted to make an album that, again, I'd gotten even further into songwriting and co-writing, especially, you know, and um, I had a few years. I mean, it was between On a Rolling Ball and the Gabe Dixon Band album, that, right. you know, which was our, the next studio album after that. Was, there were five years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had a lot of time. <laughs> I had a yeah. lot of songs built up, so I just kind of yeah. chose the best ones and tried to pick ones that kind of had a feeling about them that was, you know, honest and and rooted somehow. Yeah, know? yeah. And we, we knew we wanted it to be, um, to, to evoke uh, a classic sort of feeling, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. No, I was just glad, I'm just saying I'm glad that you think we maybe achieved that. Oh, I, I definitely, I think so. Oh, yeah, earlier today uh, we threw out to our, um, you know, to our fans on Facebook and we typically invite them to ask some questions. And, and when Rick opened up the lines to to post questions for you, a few of the questions that they posed were really regarding this album. In fact, there were a couple that referred to, of course, your your track uh, "Further the Sky," which is um, it's an amazing composition. Yeah, definitely. it's powerful and you know it, it's simple, but it, it's just uh, uh, such a well built song. And uh, your you know vocal duet you know with Mindy Smith is is. How can we say? It's just incredible. You know, she's perfect for this part. How did you guys uh, connect together? Uh, well, we just we knew each other from around town. You know, we're, we're sort of in the same circles. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a thing I used to do at a club called uh, 12th and Porter in Nashville. Every 
Monday they would do a thing called 12 at 12, and now it's at uh-huh. Mer- Mercy Lounge. It's called 8 off 8. But back then um, I was pretty involved with it with a, a, a guy named Daniel Tashin, who's in a band called the Silver Seas, would host it every week, and he'd get different artists, songwriters who were just in town doing their thing, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, to come in and, uh, and play. So I would come and, like, David Mead would show up and Butterfly Boucher and, you know, Mindy Smith and, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, Jeremy Lister and, like, a lot of these these people would be there. And I think I got to know her a little bit there. And when it came time to do this song, I knew I wanted a female voice and we'd ha- I had a bunch of people in, like, kind of in mind. I thought, you know, Sarah Bareilles or Butterfly Boucher or, like... Um, Oh my gosh! I can't even think of her name right now, but she's a sickly ridiculous good singer. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I asked a, a few people, and uh, ultimately, the fact that Mindy's in Nashville just kind of made it easier logistically. Mm-hmm. And Neil Capolino, who produced the record, had worked with her before, so we just had her come by and do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it worked out great. And there's no way during this interview I could fathom passing up the opportunity to play this song. So here it is. This is uh, Further the Sky from the 2008 Gabe Dixon Band self-titled release. Longer 
the ache, the blinder the faith, the tougher the goal. The higher you reach, the further the sky, the more miles you walk. Just to tell you how much I, I love that song, Further This Guy, and the whole album itself, I really thought, you know, uh, Gabe Dixon Band self-titled album, uh, album of the year. <laughs> Grammy, <laughs> Grammy worthy. I, you know, I Should was thinking Further This Guy, record of the year. No doubt. I mean, I, I really felt it was that strong. And, it, it, you know, I felt the same way. I, you know, I don't know if you're a Ben Folds fan or not, but his album Songs for Silverman, which, you know, man, when I heard that, when I heard that album, it just from start to finish, it just mesmerized me. I just thought it was such a well-written uh, well-crafted album, both musically and lyrically, and um, it was kind of a departure for him. And I thought this album was your album was, was such a masterpiece in, in general. So I just anyway, I'm just I'm just buttering your bread here. I'm just going on. Feel free to put me in, in the uh, same league with Ben Folds. I, I, I appreciate that. He's he's fantastic. He's, he's, he's a he's I think he's a genius. Yeah. So well, keeping on the topic of that album, just one more question. You know, how how did you feel about this particular album when it was all said and done? I mean, you obviously said you were you, you spent a lot of time on it. You were looking for some really deep-rooted material that you felt was really strong. And when it was all said and done, you know, from your early anticipation about recording this project to when it was finished, did you did it turn out the way you wanted it to? Yeah, it, it didn't turn out exactly how I thought it would, uh-huh. but it turned out the way I wanted it. I just wanted it to have great songs. I wanted it to have a, a, a nice rooted kind of feeling to it and um, put, have some focus on the trio, but but also kind of incorporate some other things. You know, I wanted to have elements like strings and some guitar and that kind of a thing. And, and I, I think we accomplished that. Yeah, definitely. So, and then I think what was cool was the artwork, too. Uh, we got yeah. guy Henry Diltz who uh, shot uh, these classic oh, yeah. shots, like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the one uh, of them on the front porch on the couch. Yeah, Deja Vu style. Doors, Morrison Hotel. The Eagles. Eagles. Yeah. So he, he was somehow available and willing to, to do our photo shoot. And, wow. Um, wow, that's neat. And we walked around some neighborhood in in, um, in Los Angeles and, and just found this house. It was all overgrown with weeds and, and stuff, and there was mail in the mailbox, you know, like <laughs> a week's worth of mail in the mailbox, and and we just stood there and snapped the shot. That's that's so cool to know that he's still working and still doing it. I, I saw uh, my uncle, this is probably about eight or nine years ago, bought me a, a DVD, and 
It's all about him and another. Uh, I can't remember the other guy's name, but uh, another guy. Yeah, that, I've w- seen that one. It was him and, and then like the art director guy. Yeah, and they, they they you know it's like modern day whatever it was whenever they put that together about ten years ago and they travel around in a little VW microbus or something and they they go around to those interesting spots where they shot all those album covers uh-huh. and they would give stories about the album cover and you know things that were happening you know at that time and like they went up to that house that Crosby, Stills, and Nash shot that uh, where they shot that album cover. And it was gone. I mean, it was something else, you know. <laughs> so, that was that's really cool. I, you know, he's somebody I'd actually like to have on the show. I can't imagine the stories he'd have. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he's a wonderful guy and just yeah. beautiful, beautiful spirit. I, I, I hope you get to get to talk to him. Yeah, we'll have to research him sometime. Yeah, we will. That, it, that that's one subject that doesn't get talked about too much is the creation of the art of yeah. these of these albums that everybody just holds so dear to their hearts. You know. Uh, photographers and that kind of stuff. We've we've got to do an, a, a show like that sometime. That's that's cool. Hey, well, let's talk about your new album, One Spark, that was recently released, or it's about to be released on the twenty third. Um, you know, two of the tracks, um, you know, on uh, on your four tracks were also strategically released on an iTunes pre launch EP that is currently available right now, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and the tracks are my favorite, and uh, on a day just like today. Uh, which those two will also appear in the in the full album. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. those two, and the other two uh, are they won't be. That's the only place you can get them. I think is on that little EP thing. Okay, you know, tell us about the other two songs because there's a you do a John Wade cover. You know, tell everybody about. about it. <laughs> well, that one's interesting. Uh, John Wade. Yeah. Who, uh, who who had a few big hits, yeah. uh, and still is an, as active as an artist for sure. And yeah. he um, covered one of my songs. He covered "Further the Sky," actually. Did he really? Uh, yeah, he covered "Further the Sky" and put it on his new album that came out this year. Wow! And uh, which was totally, you know, flattering because he's had su- such success as a singer songwriter. You know, sure, and. And so I just thought it'd be cool to return the favor uh, back to him, and and so I recorded a song of his called "Change," yeah, right, is, and and kind of stuck, you know, fairly close to the to the feeling of of his version, you know, because it's yeah. a very sort of you know '80s like foot stomping, yeah, right, yeah, uh, kind of thing, and and so I recorded a version of "Change," and that's on that EP, and I also recorded a version of "Missing You," but that that hasn't been released yet, yeah. I want to take another break and uh, let's check out Gabe's version of John Wade's classic hit, Change.
Well, tell our audience how, how uh, John Wade came to hear about your music. He was doing a project with Alison Krauss, mm-hmm. and she she had passed uh, my album off to him. Yeah. Uh, because she she knows of me, and we've sort of uh, been in similar circles for a while. And sometimes I play in her band, Union Station. Um, so yeah. yeah, Allison's the one. She she told him about it. Yeah, really. Uh, you know, I love the creativity that you guys are using to market uh, the acoustic version of my favorite to people who submit. Uh, I think it's a screenshot of the of the EP purchase. So if somebody goes to to uh, iTunes and, and and purchase the EP that we're talking about right now, uh, you get some 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 free tracks or whatever uh, is. I think that's really a, a a neat brainstorm to do it that way. That's cool. Cool. Yeah. I. I can't take credit for that idea. Yeah. <laughs> and those marketing guys, right? <laughs> yeah, I've got some some nice uh, creative people that come up with some great great ideas, and that thankfully allows me to focus on the music uh, as much as possible. Yeah. So. You posted a uh, performance recorded live from Room Five in L.A. Tell us a little bit about this. Um, that I was in town, uh, I believe, doing a couple of showcases for. For, for like Universal Music or something like that, yeah. and since I was there, we just thought we'd we'd book a show. Mm-hmm. Um, I started doing that a lot. You know, the labels had me going to uh, different places like Seattle and Portland, and uh, just for a sort of sales conferences, just to play for a bunch of music retailers to let them know who I am. And, right. And while we're in the city, we figure we might as well book a public show and 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 play some songs for people. And, mm-hmm. So that's basically what that was. And it was a special show because I had some guests come up. Um, one was is Dan Wilson, who I've written a couple of songs with, right. several songs with, who's just the most talented, you know, one of the most talented songwriters that I the, on the planet, you know, in my opinion. And I, I feel really fortunate to get to work with him all the time. But uh, he came up and we did a couple songs that we've written together. We did My Favorite and we did All Will Be Well. And... Uh, also, I got this group of a cappella singers to come up and sing uh, this song called "Find My Way" with me. "Find My Way" is on the last album, right? And I was surfing like around the internet one day, and I found this version, this a cappella version that they had just on their own just decided to do of that song. <laughs> wow. it, was, it, it was ridiculously amazing. I mean, it yeah, was incredible. So. Uh, Somehow, I, I, I have a friend who went to USC and was actually in that a cappella group a few years ago, and so I was able to get in touch with them and invite them down to the show, and we opened the show with a kind of a hybrid version of <laughs> Find My Way. Wow. <laughs> so I, I did the first like verse and chorus, and then they finished out the rest of the song. Wow, that's cool. Group. <laughs> that's really cool. <laughs> Well, somebody that you collaborated with on the One Spark album, uh, and that's producer Marshall Altman. How did you connect with him? Uh, I think it was through Twitter, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Well, he's a big fan of your music, right? Yeah. Yeah, he really liked that last album. Yeah. And I think Mark Broussard is the one who to- told him about it, because he mm-hmm. has worked with Mark a bunch. Right. And uh, I think he just, uh, one day, he said, I'm listening to Gabe Dixon, blah, blah, and somebody at my record label saw it and said, hey, have you heard Marshall Altman stuff and I checked it out and man the timing just just worked out great because I was starting to think about producers and we got together for lunch and and, and kind of hit it off and you know, I was talking about people that I 
producers that I like and that kind of thing, and I told him how much I like uh, Phil Ramone. Yeah. Because you know, mm-hmm. I, I had just been to a, a talk that he gave in Nashville. Yeah. And he said, oh, my gosh, that's like my f- the, my favorite, you know, producer ever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to yeah. work for Phil Ramone. And yeah. That was a good sign. And, and th- it was different this time um, because the band, I didn't have the same band and I didn't have any band really uh, going into it. I just I kind of put a lot of the arrangement side of things uh, into Marshall's hands. You know, I just wanted to come in with the songs and my voice, and you know, kind of let him have be kind of heavy-handed on the sonic landscape. You mm-hmm. know, that surrounds all of that, which I'd, I I'd never done, and I'd, I I'd never been super. I'd never really wanted wholeheartedly to do that, but I thought that if if ever there was a time to do it, now is the time. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like I've been pretty heavy-handed uh, in the arrangements on previous albums. You know, like I, I've I've gotten exactly not exactly what I want, but you know, pretty close to what I envisioned for it. And for this album, I, I really wanted to see what ha- what would happen if. You know, I didn't know what was happening, what was going on. If, if I didn't, if I didn't get everything I want, you know, right? Uh, what would happen if, like for example, you know, Marshall's a successful producer. I'm not a successful producer, you know, at this point. So I thought, why don't I, since I'm good at piano playing and mm-hmm. singing and writing songs, why don't I bring that in? Marshall's good at producing; he'll bring that in, you know. Uh, and his guys are really good at playing on great records, you know. Right. <laughs> They'll bring that in, you know, and so I, it was just kind of a little experiment, and I'm I'm really happy with the way it turned out. That's amazing that you're saying that. I mean, that that's not only risky, but it's uh, to to give over control and to have faith in someone based on their record and so forth. I mean, that's uh, uh, I mean, that, that's pretty. That's pr- very mature of you to to do that. But my my question is, you know, where did you end up recording, and who were the players then on this album? We did the basic tracks in L.A. at a place called El Dorado, actually in Burbank, and um, we had uh, uh, Aaron Sterling played the drums. Uh, Zach Ray played keyboards and some good guitars. Uh, Michael Chavez played guitars, and um, I am completely blanking on. <laughs> oh, Kurt Schneider! Kurt Schneider played the bass. Um, yeah, he's really awesome. He he was in uh, the band Five for Fighting, and he produces yeah. and writes a lot. So these guys, I mean, there's the cool thing about them is they play on so many sessions and so many gigs and stuff and they all have their own like production thing together that we'd come in after a take and they could there was a separate computer set up over near the couch and they could go over and like you know pick from different they could like edit their takes mm-hmm. you know while while the main engineer was you know like doing his thing fixing up the tracks and EQing and all that kind of thing wow. <laughs> amazing <laughs> it was really nice because I could just kind of sit back and, and think about, all right, well, how was my performance? And how was, you know, yeah. am I feeling this song, you know? And uh, everything else was just sort of taken care of. Yeah, 
That's a, that's amazing. You know, so so you had another keyboard on the on the session, but how much keyboard playing did you actually do in combination, and how did you share the the roles? Were you focused more on certain? I mean, how how did the mix go down with the players on on the piano on the key, keyboards? I played the piano on every every song. Just I just played piano, mm-hmm. um, except for one song called "Running on Fumes." I played Fender Rhodes, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I, if, to me, I, I, I guess I'd consider my playing as sort of rhythm piano playing, you know, yeah, like right. rhythm guitar playing, it's just sort of to, to propel the song and, and kind of, uh, you know, have the kind of uh, just the bass, bass piano part in there, you know, yeah. not bass, but you know, like the, the ground of the, of the song, I guess, yeah. in the piano. And then Zach just went to town, and he, yeah, he came in with like. I, I've never seen anybody come in with this much gear into a session. I mean, he had <laughs> this old Help and Still piano, yeah. uh, like a Fender Rhodes, a Whirly, a clavinet, some other keyboard, like two giant racks of stuff, three pedal boards, <laughs> five guitars, you know. Uh, uh, it was just unreal. So was it a sort of a combination of quasi-digital and, and uh, a heck of a lot of analog vintage material and all thrown in together i mean how yeah exactly yeah, yeah. you mean as far as he goes yeah yeah i mean it was it was it was both it was either a uh, analog gear that was run through effects pedals mm-hmm. and effects racks and that kind of a thing yeah or you know there was i think one th- sort of synthy string thing he did yeah. on the song burn for you okay um, but yeah, he was just like a wizard over there. He would just come up with <laughs> just the greatest, yeah. you know, little tasty bits, and and uh, you know, even to the point where I, I'm thinking I got to give him a call to just find out what the hell he was doing. <laughs> yeah, <he's> just because <laughs> because I have you know I've got to play with a band you know pretty soon, and <laughs> be like, so was that a delay pedal yeah. with a distortion, and what the hell was that? Yeah, you know. Well, I'm, I'm I'm glad you're talking about the effects and the piano. I mean, we have a lot of keyboardists that are probably listening, uh, probably a lot of guys from Nashville and <laughs> the guys that you know with, um, but a lot of keyboardists. I'm, I'm a keyboardist myself, but you, when you touched on the effects uh, on, on piano stuff or whatever, I mean, that really interests me an awful lot because I'm into a band right now, I mean, for a while, uh, called Keen. And uh, and right now they're you know as they record and they perform I mean they're pumping so many keyboard sounds through their effects and they're making them sound like guitar riffs and but really interesting stuff. So how how far did you push the effects and uh, distortion on these analog machines? Um, I think you'd probably have to ask Zach that, but yeah. I, we didn't get we didn't get too crazy. You know we didn't f- feature any really whacked out sounds mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. it was more just sort of uh, how can we make can we make an interesting sound can we yeah. make something that you're you know I mean the the greatest uh, you know I, the, some of my favorite records are the ones where you listen and it's got something in there and you don't you can't quite tell what it is you know? exactly so, oh, is that, yeah is that a is that a piano is that a string is that a you know what what is that so yeah um, that was um that's that's always the goal to have it be even with songwriting with with any kind of new music is to have it be familiar but different enough that it's interesting you know uh, if you go too far in one in one or the other direction uh mm-hmm. it, it's you know it's a little bit 
it can be great, but it gets a little bit risky as far as finding finding a wide audience. You know, mm-hmm. talking about technology um, in composing your music, how do you compose your songs? Are you, are you mainly uh, sitting down at the piano, or using any you know any other? What, what is it you do to when you're composing? Uh, it happens all different ways. Sometimes, yeah. um, sometimes just getting at the piano is what will will spark it. You know, I'll just play for a while and. Before I know it, I've got a, mm-hmm. I've got a, a music idea. But a lot of times, most of the time, it's just when I'm just walking around, I'll have an idea, yeah. you know, and I'll sing it into my little into my iPhone or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> are you a are you a music first or a lyric first, or is it a combination? It's both. It's, yeah. It's it's neither. It's neither and both. I mean, it's all will be well. For example, uh, I I wrote that in a coffee shop. Well, I wasn't even near a piano. I just wrote. I wrote both verses, the chorus and the bridge, just sitting there. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and music and you know melody and lyrics. You know, yeah. And then kind of went and finished it later. You know, uh, but sometimes the problem with me writing at the piano, starting an idea at the piano, is that I'll get a music idea that I just am so in love with, um, but like it, it confines me a little bit because it, it, it you know, I'll get a f- like phrasing that's just un. <laughs> uh, it's really hard to put lyrics to because it's yeah. so specific, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So I try, I try and write. Uh, I try and write without a piano. I try and just sort of sing the stuff because ultimately a song is just melody and lyrics, you know. So, yeah. So you don't really need a piano. Uh, to, to get going, in my opinion. Hey, well, let's take a break, and I, I want to check out a track from Gabe's new album, One Spark, that's uh, due out in the States on August 23rd, and this is a track called Things That Move Me. These are things that move me Cause the heart knows what to do And baby, you can see Sat up in the bed Clouds blown over from the night they were born in Still dreams in my head Put my feet on the wood floor Through the blind saw the blue Rising up like a phoenix Higher narcissus in bloom Sorted story Locking into the beat 
throw me down like a wild card Pick me up on a dead A sea of souls On a slow sixth lane The weight of air When it feels like rain These are things that move me Cause the heart about to wrap up, but I, I can't end the interview without asking about your connection to Paul McCartney. And I understand that he uh, he really, I guess probably about 10 years ago or so, he picked up on your music somehow and really liked what you were doing. And I think you uh, performed with him once at that concert for New York after 9-11. And, and I think you also played on his Driving Rain album around that same time, back in 2001. That's right. That's how it started. Um, D- David Kahn, who signed us to Warner Brothers Records and produced you know my band's album. Uh-huh was producing Paul McCartney's album the following month mm-hmm. um, and asked me if I would do it. It's amazing. So I said, of course, and God. I just got to spend six weeks in a studio with Paul McCartney and Abe Laborio Jr. and Rusty Anderson yep. and uh, make, making that album. Abe Laborio Jr. is such an amazing drummer. <laughs> yeah. I got to see him perform at the, at the uh, Baked Potato out in L.A. one time, and I didn't know who he was. This is probably going back to like 97 or 98 or something. And uh, I just kind of saw him. He was he was playing in a um, – he was playing with Steve Lukather and a bunch of L.A. guys. And and, uh, and I was just kind of I, – I, you know, I was there to see Steve Lukather, but I, I couldn't take my eyes off Abe Labriel Jr. because he just <laughs> had a little small little trap set. You know, he, I think he's a little thinned down now, but he was kind of a big guy at the time. And he just kind of, you know, kind of towered over his drum set. But, man, he just played with – it was just such feel. He was such a feel drummer. He just felt his way through everything he was playing, and it was just a real pleasure to watch him play. Yeah, and 
he's so animated, fun to watch, but and to play with. The cool thing for me uh, was just that I never ever had any doubt or question where he was and where the beat was going to land. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he made it so clear in just his feel, and even physically you could see him, like, with his gestures and stuff. It was just easy to play with him, you know? Yeah. That's always fun. Well, one quick question, again, going back to Paul McCartney again. Um, I think you were offered a chance to, to actually go out on the road with his band, and, and uh, you, you turned it down. And was that because you were in the thick of things with the Gabe Dixon band? I mean, I, I would have loved to have done it. Yeah. I, I tried to make it work. I well, can I open for you and this and that? But the fact was uh, we had a, a deal with Warner Brothers Records. We had tour dates on the books. Our album was done, but yeah. it hadn't come out yet. And I just kind of had to ask myself, you know, what is it What is it that I really, truly, you know, I've got two really great options here. <laughs> you know, what is it that I really, really, truly want to do mm-hmm. uh, more than the other? And I just had to... You know, ask myself. You know, it especially it was especially hard because I'm such an enormous Paul McCartney fan. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in the end, I just felt like I had to follow my own heart and, and my own what my own music. You know. Yeah, it's all about timing, isn't it? Timing. Jeez, <laughs> right. amazing. <laughs> yeah, if it had been like you know a few years later. Maybe yeah. Yeah, but what a what a treat to know that you know one of the uh, Sir Paul. Uh, respects your music and <laughs> I mean that does has to be just a treat in itself do you dream about that <laughs> <laughs> I think about it quite a bit yeah it's, wake uh, up it's wake up in the middle of the night <gasps> oh, geez, no. anyway. it's still hard to get my head around the fact that that even happened <laughs> <laughs> slap me <laughs> I, I think it did and I'm really grateful well, neat. Hey, what, what can we expect? Uh, what's next for One Spark? Uh, we're assuming that uh, you'll be out on the road supporting the album. What? Uh, how do you see yourself? Yeah. Uh, I'm about to start a little tour with the, with the Wood Brothers, who are one of my favorite groups. Um, huh. And uh, we're doing a little Northeast tour. And I guess uh, after that, in September, I'm playing touring with a group called 10 Out of 10, which a group of 10 singer-songwriters based out of Nashville who all jump on a bus and go and play on each other's songs. Wow, that's, that's cool. cool. <laughs> We're doing that's... an East Coast tour, and, uh, and then I've got a, a few more things lined up for for the fall, but I, I'm hoping to maybe book some, some UK dates at some point, maybe for October or something. That's cool. Um, but we're still working on that. Yeah, well, you just let us know what happens, and we'll be glad to, to oh, spread the word out there, man. Hopefully all the rioting stops over there before you get there. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Might wait till after that. Yeah. Well, Gabe, this has been a real treat to talk to you and to learn more about uh, your new album, One Spark, and, and of course, uh, your background and where you've come from, and, and I'm sure fans are really going to dig this. Well, thanks. It seems like a really great show, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to dig dig deeper into what I'm doing. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I'm going to I'm gonna keep in touch with you because I want to find out what you're doing uh, down the road and, and, of course, let our listeners know about it. And Eddie and I are going to try to make it down to Nashville sometime and check out one of your shows. No doubt. Please do. Yeah. September 4th. Yeah, the, yeah. Album, the <laughs> album is One Spark. It's going to be released on August 23rd. Where can they, uh, where, I mean, obviously the iTunes and where else to, uh, this is your, your pitch right here? iTunes, work. Amazon, okay. uh, you know, I, I think. Gosh, I think they might even have it in Walmart, but yeah. don't quote me on that. Oh, okay. cool. Uh, Excellent. Uh, but a few, a bunch of retailers are, are going to be selling it, um, but you certainly will get it at Amazon or iTunes. 
Great. Well, thanks again for uh, hanging out with us today. Thanks, Gabe. Well, thank you, guys. Have a good one. All, All right. Take too. care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Special thanks to Gabe Dixon for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Max Zabe, Lupe Reith, and Mikhail Lingstrom. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can catch up on all of our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside Music Cast is also on Facebook, where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside Music Cast fans from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. <laughs>